This episode of The Incubator is proudly sponsored by Chiesi. Providing innovative neonatology solutions for more than 35 years, Chiesi is committed to supporting the neonatology community and the NICU families you serve. To learn more, visit www.nicuconnections.com slash incubator. This podcast is sponsored by Fisher and Pykel Healthcare. Fisher and Pykel Healthcare have more than 50 years of innovation and development in supporting respiratory needs across the hospital and home improving patient care and outcomes. Today, Fisher and Pykel Healthcare's medical devices are used in the treatment of about 14 million patients worldwide. They truly understand the needs of our youngest patients who have developing respiratory systems, which is why they have a full portfolio of respiratory support solutions for neonates, infants, and children. This is The Incubator, a weekly discussion about new advances in neonatology and the fascinating individuals who make this progress possible. I am Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova-Barbeau. We are neonatal intensive care physicians. Welcome. Dr. Lonnie Miner, Dr. Amy Miner, thank you so much for making the time to be on with us today on the Incubator Podcast. Thanks for having us. So we are continuing our series on the management of respiratory distress in neonates, talking about flow versus pressure. And I think that now today is the day that we will actually get into the nitty gritty of this discussion of flow versus pressure. Um, I think that um, there's a lot of discussions about the use of high-flow nasal cannula, especially in the context of RDS. Maybe, is, can one of you tell us a little bit, what is high-flow nasal cannula and how is that different from CPAP? Um, you know, with CPAP, we, are, we make a seal and we are delivering PEEP. With high-flow nasal cannula, we are delivering a flow. And then the uh, kind of the unknown is um, how much pressure we're delivering because as you deliver a flow, if the flow is high enough, then you're also going to deliver pressure, right? You'll still deliver distending pressure. So um, with high flow, part of the the reason that it um, is theorized to work is that there is a a washout and um, it overcomes the dead space. So that's... I think one of the reasons that that it works, but we also at times use it um, because it has that distending pressure. And um, I think that's one of the things that is uh, important to understand is that we are giving some pressure. Um, how much we're giving, you know, that still remains to be uh, identified. And that's been part of the the, the, the areas that um, we've done a little bit of research on using an artificial model. So um, one of the things we presented at PAS on a poster presentation that Amy did this last year was um, comparing um, pressure and in in um, um, that was 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 at least uh, measuring different flow um, rates with different um, high flow systems, VapoTherm, OptiFlow Junior, different ones that are that are available clinically. And what we found is there's pretty much um, um, if you're looking at distending pressure when you're at the, your lower flows. Again, the definition of high flow has varied over the years. 
Um, when I, I actually um, first started practicing around the time that high flow was becoming um, a thing, we actually used to make our own high flow devices by duct taping nasal cannula mm-hmm. to a, uh, a heater because I was in St. George at the time where we're in the middle of a desert. It's super high, super, um, he, um, it's not very humid. You know, it's, it's, you know, very dry there. Sorry. And, uh, and, and um, so we had a lot of babies with, um, you know, that we were trying to use higher flows that were having a lot of nasal, nasal breakdown. So Vapotherm, they brought in their system over time. And then we've had the Fisher Picala and other systems that have come in um, that provide heated, humidified, high flow nasal cannula. And I think that's the thing to remember. It's not just high flow. It's an element of humidity and it's an element of um, heating and um, warming the, the gases that are transmitted to the baby. I think this is, this is a critical point you're making. So if I turn on the flow and I put, in on, I put the, the nasal cannula at a flow of five and I don't use any of the apparatus that you mentioned with humidifiers and stuff, what's the difference? What's the big deal? Why can't I just crank up the flow and, and just slap on a cannula? What's the difference there? Like connecting it to the wall and just turning it up? That's right. Yeah, which sometimes we see. We'll have outside hospitals that are trying to get by until they get a transport team there, and they'll do it. I think there's a, there's a number of issues that that are there. Number one is when that's left in place over time, you're going to have a lot of dry out. You're going to have a you're going to have a lot of irritation to the nasal mucosa. You're going to have a lot of swelling. The other thing is is it's probably not as effective. The heating and the humidification allows for I think a better washout effect, and you allow for better better flow. Um, better flow dynamics. That's kind of my personal take on it. Um, and that's what I've seen over the years as we've evolved in the use of the high flow cannula. And I think this stems from, from um, semantics because I think it's funny when you we say high flow and so we say, okay, so above a certain level, this is high flow. But actually when you read literature and you read papers, it is always written as you mentioned it, uh, Lonnie, which is like humidified uh, high, right. I mean, and, and that component of humidity is, is so important. Um, I am wondering, Amy, in, in your experience, um, what is considered high flow? Uh, at what point are we saying now, now you're on low flow now you're on high flow. Is it one liter? Is it two liters? Like what, what have you, what, what is your, uh, your, your compartmentalization of the different, uh, modalities? There's not a, a really strict definition. And so um, I've seen it different in different places. Um, but typically, I think of it, it anything over two liters, because at that point, you you have to have, um, it has to be heated and humidified. Um, but some sometimes it's more thought of uh, three liters and above. So some of it's, uh, it's, it is a little bit of semantics, like Amy mentioned, and it's kind of a lesson in history. So when we were first developing high flow and when the, when this was coming into being, we used to call it H3 F and C, um, uh-huh. you know, the heated humidified high flow nasal cannula. But we actually kind of arbitrarily had to pick a number that we would consider high flow. Part of it, and this sounds silly, it came from a billing issue. Um, when do you go from being um, intensive care to critical? That makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't so much of what we do driven by a billing issue. And there was a a fair amount of the respiratory literature that actually identified two liters as kind of a cutoff. Mm -hmm. Um, There are some some groups that actually, again, coming from a semantics issue, will say two liters if you're less than 1,500 grams, three liters if you're over, and then others, just to be consistent, will say two liters and above. So. 
Thank you. I um, Before we get too far away from it, I want to go back and touch on something that you mentioned in some of the work that y'all have um, done at your institution. We have a lot of trainees who listen, and I think sometimes it's a difficult concept for um, people coming into the field about we set a we set a number, right? Or we pick a number, and the baby or the end alveoli I don't always see that number. What what is so complicated about measuring how much pressure or flow in this case we're able to give an infant? It depends so much on the resistance to flow, the compliant, the lung compliance, um, and then you know how much. Um, how much pressure you're and flow you're still getting when you reach the distal alveoli. So, you know, we can say that that we're giving a certain uh, certain pressure, but usually that's measured right at the interface. Um, I think there were a couple of studies initially that um, they were. Um, I think they were taking laryngeal measurements, um, but to actually measure the pressure that that each alveoli is seeing, um, that that's very difficult, right? And I think that's I think that's one of the primary issues. That's the difference um, when we're talking about non-invasive versus invasive ventilation. With invasive ventilation, I think we have some pretty good mechanical approaches to it, so to speak. I mean, depending on which ventilator you're using, um, you you have an endotracheal tube in place, you hook a sensor up either at the at the endotracheal tube um, or it's measured, you know, behind the circuit. And I think that's important to kind of know when you're doing that. But um, you know, where your where your ventilator is measuring pressures. So that works very well with an inline endotracheal tube. And you get a sense of what exhaled tidal volumes are, what inhaled tidal volumes are, those kind of things. There's really not a good model for looking at non-invasive measurements. So like Amy mentioned, people have tried laryngeal measurements. They've tried esophageal manometry. Um, and then artificial models. The biggest problem we run into with artificial models is people will just kind of attach things to just a little device that measures pressure, but it doesn't measure the airway resistance. So one of the biggest differences when you're talking about an endotracheal tube versus non-invasive is you're having to flow through all of the airway. You also have subglottic closure that happens. Um, if you look at the rabbit model, when you're doing different forms of non-invasive ventilation like nasal IMB, you know, you'll have glottic closure with each breath if you're not careful. So you don't see that with your endotracheal tube measurements. So we don't really have a good way of measurement, measuring it exactly. Um, Bob, Dr. de Blasi has a pretty good, um, in Seattle, has, a, has an airway model that's hooked up to a fairly sophisticated system. We've been using one um, with the Fisher Pikel folks that um, is is a 3D CT scan of um, an artificial airway, and it's not bad. It's about it's a 750 gram baby that's taken from 3D CT modeling. It measures at the subglottis. The issue with that is is we still don't have soft tissue mm-hmm. um, that's there. You know that the that floppiness shrink- factor. Floppiness, exactly. <laughs> so we're measuring like a mouth open, mouth closed. Mm-hmm. Yeah probably somewhere in between. It's not exact. So it's a hard, it's a hard thing to, to measure. Um, so I think a lot of it is um, one of my, my original mentors was, was Don Null. If you guys are familiar with mm-hmm. him, um, who, uh, um, and, and his, his, his one of, we still quote this around primary children's to this day. And that is, if all else fails, go look at your patient. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Love that. <laughs> no? Love that. So um, there's so you always have to remember that probably what you're seeing on your 
settings, whether it's bubble CPAP, whether it's the ventilator, and that is affected by your nasal interface, is probably never truly what you're seeing delivered to the baby itself. I appreciate that. And, you know, we've talked a lot about resistance and interfaces. And so our sense in the community is that most people start babies on CPAP and use high flow as like a weaning modality. But why not start high flow as like a primary intention? There was a study now, I can't remember when it was done, but they looked at non-inferiority between um, CPAP and high flow um, as a post-extubation in infants, uh, I believe it was 28 to 32 weeks. I, I could be wrong on the gestation, but um, but it was a post-extubation first intention. Um, and there was um, uh, there, there was no difference, no long-term difference. So it, it certainly could be, right? And, and it comes down a lot to the comfort of the providers, of the nurses who are applying it, of that, that it's something that everybody is familiar with and, and comfortable and knows how to use, right? And some of it, just, just so you know, there are some places that do. Um, and, uh, um, you know, even within our, so one of the biggest issues within, um, I work primarily for Intermountain Healthcare in conjunction with the University of Utah. Um, we have multiple centers. And we find that there's a lot of variability between centers. So at one center that I've worked at for years and years, we actually would start babies on a high flow of eight. Um, and, 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 um, and that was kind of a, and we actually had very good outcomes for quite a long time with that. Whereas another center is very aggressive with CPAP and we'll use CPAP up to eight to 10, mm-hmm. um, as some as they're, you know, in, in their starting areas. And then we have other places that are in the middle and it's CPAP of six to eight. So one of the things we've been trying to do over time is develop a little bit more of a consistent approach, but you certainly, you certainly do need to think how to put it. I think it's really important that as a group, you're consistent with what you do, that you understand the nuances of each system that you're using and what its capabilities are, and try to pick and choose which patients are the appropriate patients for that for that interface. Um, just like you need to do that with, you know, applying non-invasive ventilation. There are some babies that do, in my mind, probably need to be intubated sooner than later, mm-hmm. especially if they failed an initial trial. You know, I think all babies deserve a little bit of an initial trial during resuscitation, right? But if you've got a um, a baby, whether they're term and they're super sick with a pneumonia or a meconium aspiration or an extremely low birth weight of 24 to 26 weeks, which we're still trying to figure out how to manage those babies best, if they're not flying and they're not improving, then you need to move more quickly to innovation. The, the things that we found with high flow that are interesting is that there's kind of an exponential curve. So you'll, you know, when you go from two liters to three liters to four liters, there's not a lot of PEEP that's delivered, but you do get a CO2 washout. And in fact, some of those lower flows may be better for achieving a CO2 washout in a patient who's, because you get more turbulence and you, and you get more, um, um, you may have more of an improvement from that standpoint. If you've got a baby that's needing recruitment and is having issues with oxygenation, then you need something that's going to apply some kind of distending pressure. Amy and I, our, our work there, um, um, and I can have, and she can comment on this more, is um, once we reached a flow of about six, um, we found that we would start on this artificial model. Sorry, I should have described that, and I apologize. No this worries. Is, no worries. Um, 
on that artificial model that we were using. And uh, these were these were presented at PAS, so they're available to look at. And we're in the process of writing writing the the papers for publication. We did find that you start to see a, a peep of about three. And then there was a little bit of almost of, a, of an exponential curve that by you get by the time you get to a high flow of eight, you have a peep of about five. And then we actually tested it all the way up to 15, which most of us probably wouldn't do in a low birth weight baby. No, <laughs> I can speak for many of us on this one. I've got a six kilo kid that I'm doing 12 liters on, but you know, that's yeah. kind of yeah. a little sketchy. But there's, you know, the baby's got a lot of, he's a very complicated chronic lung disease kid. But um, once you're, you know, once you reach about eight, you've got that all the way up to 15. I think we got up to, we kind of plateau and you, and you end up with a peep somewhere between six to eight when you get up to flows of that high. So the, the, the heuristic of saying that maybe a uh, a peep of five is equivalent to a high flow of five liters which i'm gonna raise my hand and say as a first and second year fellow i've i i used and then eventually you learn what you guys just mentioned is really not something that can be used in the NICU it's not a good rule it's not a good rule to follow right correct and so i think you mentioned something uh Lonnie, that's interesting which is that you you said it's important to differentiate whether you want to treat maybe hypoxemia versus ventilatory failure. And I think that's something that many people sometimes compound, con- confuse, and, and, and we're not really good sometimes at teasing these two apart. But can you, can maybe Amy or, or you, Lonnie, go into a little bit, what is, what is the difference between hypoxemia and ventilatory failure? And w- what kind of differences are there when it comes to the needs of the patient regarding management? So, you know, with the hypoxemia, you're looking at your um, your FiO2 delivery and, and your um, oxygenation. Um, and that's, we typically think of PEEP. So in that sense, um, that's where you would be more concerned about making sure that you have, that you are, you have some pressure delivery, right? But um, the thing that that is unique, I think, about high flow that Lonnie mentioned um, is that there is pretty significant CO2 washout um, so that even at the lower flows, then then you're going to affect your CO2, which would be your your uh, your ventilation, right? So um, that, uh, I mean, I think, I think that's something that maybe we don't really think about, that differentiating that, that you can take that into consideration depending on on clinically what it what is the concerns with the with the baby and i and i think what you're trying to make sure that you're doing is 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 sometimes these two things overlap so like you know when when folks use the oscillator and i know that's you know that's not the topic of our conversation here necessarily but um everybody talks about mean airway pressure is oxygenation amplitude is um you know ventilation um, what I found though is if you don't get a baby's lungs open and you don't che- achieve an optimal lung volume, so I always think in terms of an optimal lung volume strategy. So no matter what I'm trying to do, I need to achieve recruitment, right? Mm-hmm. That's the very first thing. Um, then you can't ventilate the baby very well, and in, in your in your ventilatory efforts don't work if you don't have the lung recruited. Um, then as you recruit the lung, you both improve your oxygenation and your ventilation. Now, if you've got a, a, a well, a well recruited lung, then the issue might be, or the baby's able to maintain that recruitment on their own. Then again, it might be that they need, you know, something, you know, thinking more of a, 
more of a high flow, something that helps ease the baby's work of breathing, helps them to maintain recruitment, which high flow can do. So I'm still a, a, a huge proponent of starting with CPAP, um, using that to achieve good recruitment, making sure you establish an early FRC in a baby, a functional residual capacity, and then from there, seeing what the baby needs. If the baby is able to do that on their own, however, then you know you don't necessarily want to apply a system to them that may actually complicate things. You know, people always talk about pneumothoraces. I actually worry a little bit more about just getting this baby over distended and then having this baby trying to breathe against things with this big barrel twist. Does that make sense? It does. So one of the things I try to, when I work with the residents and fellows, um, I actually have a number of articles I like them to read. And and one of the things I like them to, to, to think about is um, there's actually a good article that um, I think it was Alan Job and uh, um, Reese Clark and Brad Yoder and Dale Gersman wrote. Like it was, it was so long ago that when I asked Brad about it, he forgot he had written it. <laughs> <laughs> he said, "Oh, did I write that?" But that could be because he's also he also publishes a lot. Yes, <laughs> that's it. You know, and but it, but it's a very nice review article where basically they go through where does lung injury come from. So when I start a conversation on um, different modalities of ventilation, or when I'm teaching. Um, residents and fellows about the different nuances of the conventional versus us, you know, versus high frequency ventilation. I always start with, with where does lung injury come from? Because you first need to understand your pathophysiology and then you need, then you apply your, your ventilatory or your, your, um, your respiratory support based on the pathophysiology of your baby. And that's something that um, Don Knoll taught us very on when I was a fellow and Brad Yoder has continued that teaching and training as my mentor to this day. So I worry about atelectasis and shear trauma. I worry about volume trauma. I worry about hypoxia, you know, and, and hyperoxia and, and uh, um, you know, free radical formation. And I worry about inflammation. Down the road, you know, lower on the list is barotrauma. Everybody is like barotrauma. When I ask the residents, where does lung injury come from? I'm like, well, let's talk about that. So I think your first thing is you've got to, whatever you need to do, you establish a good FRC. A lot of times that takes a CPAP device that's delivering a true amount of PEEP. And that can be depending on what your institution is used to. As long as it's working, you know, five to six versus six to eight, depending on your different places. Um, but the main thing is, is look at your patient see what their oxygen needs are. If, as you establish an FRC, those oxygen needs should be improving. Their work of breathing should be improving. And um, then you move forward from there. The other article I always like the, 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 the residents and fellows to read is the AAP guideline on non-invasive ventilation in the premature infant. And basically it's start with non-invasive ventilation, try to optimize that as best as you can, and then move towards some form of surfactant delivery, intubation, you know, we've, we've got all, that's, that's all over the place these days, right? That's a whole nother podcast. Um, but anyways, um, move towards some other form of more invasive ventilation if you need to, but don't let the baby linger, but give them an opportunity to recruit, but then don't let them sit there for a prolonged period of time having ongoing atelectasis and lung damage. Does that make sense? It, it does make sense. And I think what um, what I think is a great jumping point for us is the fact that the, I'm going to bring this up in the form of a uh, of a sort of a, of a myth or or uh, again, one of these uh, heuristics where there's there's some some people who often say, well, if, if you're delivering CPAP, we, we've mentioned how giving 
uh, support via a nasal cannula, at certain flows can deliver some form of uh, positive and expiratory pressure. But there's there's a, an argument to be made that once we are picking certain interfaces for the delivery of CPAP, ones that introduce leakage, right? Ones that are not completely occluding the nares and so on and so forth. Some people are saying then, well, you, you may think you're still on CPAP, but you're kind of on high flow nasal cannula. And so um, I am wondering if you guys can talk a little bit about your experience with that specifically and whether you, you do believe that it is the case that if you are on a, on a CPAP plus five with a form of nasal cannula that has a lot of leak around the nares, then yeah, effectively you are not delivering the PEEP you've set and you're on, on, on a quote unquote fake high flow nasal cannula or if, if we have to be more moderated when we address that issue. Unfortunately, I think the lines are very blurred right between CPAP and high flow that you can um, have have your interface and have in your head that I'm on high flow, for example, or I'm on CPAP. But are, are you really delivering what you think you're delivering? So um, with, with um, the study that we did, we showed that with high flow, you can deliver uh, the the positive indexpiratory pressure, right? You've got your distending pressure. And so you can have, you can be on high flow, but still be delivering a PEEP as you would with CPAP. So I think it's really just looking at what are your goals of therapy and, and uh, where is your infant at, at this point in, um, uh, in, in, the growth and development. For example, if you're on CPAP, but your baby is, you know, 38 weeks and, and you still haven't been able to um, introduce feeding and, and, you know, some of these developmental goals, then you can put the baby on high flow, still get some of that pressure that you need, but then it would free the baby up to be able to uh, to do other things, right, and including bonding with parents. Like there are there are a lot of advantages of being on high flow as long as you're able to um, deliver enough PEEP, um, knowing that certainly you're not going to deliver as much as you would on CPAP. So, and Ben, to go back to your question a little bit too, as far as different, it sounds to me like kind of different interfaces. So I think one of the things that people want to do is they just figure, well, if I just stick something on a CPAP device, that it's just fine. And I don't have issues with it in that I, I, one of the reasons that we started looking at things with this artificial model that we did is because I was bugged by lots of opinions, but very little information. And I'm kind of one of those that's like, okay, let's do stuff, but let's make sure we know what we're doing. Right. Uh So so, so we've got that. So Amy, Amy's specific focus was looking at the high flow area and kind of what are we doing with high flow nasal cannula? And then my part of our project was looking at more of a, more of the nasal interfaces with CPAP. And those were, and, and, and I think the important thing there is, is I don't necessarily advocate one over the other. You know, I try to be very careful. And I walked into this with the idea of being that I actually kind of expected them to be equivalent. And specifically, we're talking OptiFlow Junior being hooked up to nasal IMV, um, the RamCam being used for CPAP and nasal IMV, and then um, we use the the one of the Flexi Trunk devices. But there's also I, I haven't looked at Hudson Prongs, but you know there's 
a lot of, that's what I used back in the day was the Hudson mm-hmm. prongs. And I think that's what they're still using at Columbia, if I'm correct. And I think Oregon. So what we found with doing that is not all devices are equal for delivering PEEP and back pressure. Um, however, there's different, as Amy mentioned, and I think it's a very important top, a very important point, there are developmental implications to these different devices that you're using. So if you need to recruit a lung, you want to make sure that you're using as close to your set PEEP and having that as close to your delivered PEEP as possible. And in, and in the, the, the things that we looked at, um, we found that you need a true, in a sense, standard or trying to think of the right word, um, not old fashioned, but um, traditional, traditional. Thank you. More of a traditional CPAP device. So something that has an inspiratory limb, has an expiratory limb. And then you mentioned, you know, that they're not occlusive. Probably even more importantly, that, that, that or probably as important as that is the resistance in the circuit um, for what you're, the flow that you're trying to deliver that helps deliver the PEEP. So um, we found that pretty much a traditional CPAP system would give you pretty, that delivered you know, through the nares on this artificial model to a subglottic area would give you pretty close to your set, set peep was within, you know, it was probably like one less. There was a little bit of a drop off. And we found that same thing when we did it with the nasal IMB system. Um, Although we can talk later, not all nasal IMB settings are equivalent as far as how the ring pressure too. Um, The RAMCAN non-occlusive delivered a significantly less amount of of PEEP, it would give us at most about three and a half centimeters of water. Now that's with a small baby system, not with more of the pediatric ones that are that are bigger bore with less resistance. And that's something I haven't looked at and probably would like to see with models of bigger babies in the future, especially trying to manage chronic lung babies that just can't keep anything on their face. Um, I find that that system can sometimes be helpful. And then I found that the OptiFlow Junior system just should not be hooked up to a CPAP system. It's it's there for high flow, but it only could deliver at max about one and a half centimeters of water peep, no matter high, how high you ran your... We ran up to a total of 15 liters of flow and 10 centimeters of water peep, both with bubble CPAP systems and with ventilator systems, and really found that the... And then even on nasal IMB settings up to like a PIP of 30 and a PEEP of, of 12, the OptiFlow Junior could only deliver a couple centimeters of water PEEP at best. So, so just knowing that I think is important because if you're in the early phases, you need to recruit, right? Um, you're going to want to have a more exact PEEP. You're going to want to try and open those lungs. Then you have a baby that maybe is in a more chronic phase and maybe it's okay to have three and a half centimeters of water PEEP and have a baby that is more comfortable with the the you know with with the nasal interface so that he can be held he can have playtime he can do things like that so either high flow cannula at a higher level or a ram can in one of these systems maybe the better the better approach mm-hmm. i think it's such an interesting transition because as neonatologists and as providers we tend to do a very rough association of like this thing does this job, right? So it's like the cooling blanket, it just cools the baby when I have a patient with HIE, the incubator provides warmth and humidity, and the ventilator provides the respiratory support that I want. But what I'm learning from from you both and throughout the series is that there's really a responsibility of the clinicians to really familiarize yourself 
with what is available within your unit to understand how you are achieving the goals you set for yourself and the patient. And that's something that is probably the product of modern neonatology and, and something that more providers should be aware of. And, and I think that's very interesting. Well, I found it, it was it was a funny, it was just a just kind of a commentary on that. When I presented some of this data at WSPR, I mentioned, you know, one of the questions was, was, well, you're doing, you know, Amy had presented the high flow data and then I presented our, our CPAP and a lot of folks were kind of aghast at, oh my gosh, you're using eight liters of flow. And I asked him, he says, well, how much flow do you use on your CPAP? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's interesting. I had a, I had a large number of neonatologists turn and look to look at each other, experienced old dogs like me that were like, um, what do we set our flows at? And, <laughs> you know? And and actually that flow on your, especially on bubble CPAP is really critical for achieving, you know, your, your recruitment and making sure your bubbler is working like it should, you know, so, and it can range anywhere from eight to 10 to 12. Um, usually that's kind of the range that I'm seeing. What's interesting is when you read studies on comparing things, those things aren't often put into the studies. Mm-hmm. And, I'm, and I always find that interesting when I'm trying to figure out why is this showing a better outcome than this? Mm. Sometimes I think it's missing components of what people are doing clinically at the bedside and they may not quite know. So that's a good comment, Ben. I appreciate that. We've um, we've talked a lot about the, the upper limits of high flow and kind of our starting uh, parameters, but I have a question on the other end of the spectrum. So, you know, we've got these babies who have been on high flow for weeks and weeks and weeks. Every time we try to take them off, they, they don't do well. Kind of what are your clinical parameters? How do you decide? Do I keep weaning the high flow? Do I just transition this kid to nasal cannula? How do you know how much nasal cannula to, to make at that transition time? This is a really interesting question because depending on where you're at, we're incredibly inconsistent. Mm-hmm. I think even even within the same unit, we're probably oh, pretty inconsistent. yeah, like and then attending to attending. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, and, absolutely. And so, so that's why this comes up because I'll come on service after, mm-hmm. you know, I'll come on for one of my partners who will have a baby on a certain level of flow thinking, you know, again, that isn't consistent with the, the information that Amy and I have looked at. Um, you know, Amy's study showed very clearly that you need to be on at least a, a flow of about, you know, at least five going on six before you start to see any peep. But I'll have individuals leaving babies on a flow of two, thinking that, well, we're we're providing some back pressure to kind of do things. And you're not. But you may be helping ease the work of breathing. You may be helping the baby breathe a little easier. So that is an awesome question. Part of it, I think it depends on your baby. Um, are we treating a premature baby with RDS? Are we treating a term baby with pneumonia? And um, I think that's a different, each each one has a different um, a different approach. One of the ways that we're, and, and I think if you were to ask Dr. Poland, who was previously on here, um, you know, I think there's some thoughts on how long we should leave babies on PEEP. Um, so um, within the Intermountain system, we're just now rolling out um, a new BPD kind of protocol and doing it as a QI project. Um, and this has been a large group that a group effort um, with medical directors and respiratory therapy directors and everybody from across our system. What we're what we're moving towards is early traditional CPAP with uh, with um, you know here it's a flexi trunk, but whether it's Hudson prongs flexi, 
I, I don't think that necessarily matters. It's, but more of a an early traditional CPAP, inspiratory limb, expiratory limb, occlusive CPAP. Recruit. And then once the baby is weaned gradually to about a, about five centimeters of water, then transitioning over to maybe a more developmentally appropriate system. And we actually have left some leeway for those who really feel that the RAM can is more appropriate versus high flow. So we kind of have two options, high flow of six versus a RAM can with a peep that we think would give about three centimeters of water. And then at least leaving them on a certain amount of peep until they're about 32 weeks gestation. And then from there, we're going to see how it goes because it's probably going to get all inconsistent again. But the idea is we're trying to create some consistency, follow our outcomes, see if we improve our chronic lung disease rates, maybe improve our bedside caregivers' um, satisfaction with us as medical providers not changing things on a regular basis every day, um, which I think is a huge issue. And, um, and then see if there's some thought that maybe leaving babies on um, a, a level of PEEP that might um, mimic the, amni- the intraamniotic fluid pressure until they're a little older may help with pulmonary development. Yeah, we, we've started doing that too. Okay. So yeah, we started doing that too, especially in, in babies at high risk of BPD to try to leave them on, on a bit of positive and expiratory pressure to, to promote uh, lung growth. And that's something that I'm seeing more and more as well. How's that going for you guys? Very well, very well. We find that the process of weaning these babies is much more rapid mm-hmm. around the 32 week mark exactly. rather than as Daphna was mentioning uh we all remember these babies that uh they were sort of do- you're like oh but they've been doing relatively okay for this long and you just can't get them off that mm-hmm. little bit of either peep or flow and i think that has to do with the fact that you recruited a few alveoli that are working pretty well <laughs> and you're <laughs> and uh, the rest are just uh have shriveled away I think one of the issues that we have with this, though, is we'll have a kid parked on six liters. And I've, I've had a few babies I've trialed, and I'd kind of like to hear more about your guys' outcomes and take this back to our group. But, um, you know, I've left them on six liters until 32 weeks. And then, like you said, Ben, what I see is they they sit on six liters 21% for, like, the last week. And then they just – and then you just wean yeah. rapidly and they do great. Yeah. Um, I think the biggest problem we have is a little bit of a paradigm shift that it is okay to sit on six liters, 21%. That even though the baby's saturations are 98 to hundred, you're not on oxygen. We have this, this innate reflex of like, but, but I got to wean. I got, I, I mean, I have to lower something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'll tell you in, in our unit, <laughs> I'm a, I'm a conservative I wean slowly and Ben will come on and the parents love it when Ben comes on because he's been watching the baby from afar and he's decided the baby's ready. So he'll go from, you know, the, you know, four liters of high flow, high flow, six liters of high flow just to, to off. And he's the, he's always the hero in the unit. So (laughs) I have that same issue with Brad Yoder. Um, He'll come on on call and he watches all these babies from afar. Yeah. And I'll come in the next morning and, and he knows we and I, he and I have worked together for, I mean, I completely trust Brad and, you know, carte blanche, whatever he feels is appropriate. So I'll come in the next morning and half my babies will be extubated. Mm, yeah, that's exactly <laughs> right. Like, okay. And they do great. And they do great. Uh, it's um, infuriating. <laughs> Amy, did you have any other comments or? There's a couple, there were a couple of studies. There was um, a Cochrane review and there was a meta-analysis recently that looked at this very thing. They were looking at um, 
um, what is the best way to um, wean your non-invasive support. Um, and they looked at um, the CPAP, like taking breaks off of CPAP or just weaning the PEEP and then when when to come off of PEEP, when to to go on to high flow, if that's what you're going to do, when to go to nasal cannula. And and they looked at a, a whole lot of studies and the end result was um, that certainly um, weaning slowly versus um, just stopping abruptly, which we could have predicted, um, results in in less time on CPAP overall and less um, time requiring oxygen. Um, but overall, there wasn't a really huge consensus on on how what is the best way to step down. Mm-hmm. So um, I think it, it really is a lot of um, watching <laughs> watching your baby and seeing seeing how you can do. And then the the big question remains that I, I think is a really interesting one. There was just a, a study, I think it was Lamb et al. just did a study, and uh, Dr. Poland has um, has done these studies before through Columbia, where they're looking at the effect of um, CPAP or you know any distending pressure on the the development of the alveoli, and um, you know that idea that if we leave them leave them on with some distending pressure for a longer amount of time? Are we um, improving the growth of the alveoli and then long-term improving their their long-term pulmonary outcomes? As we're getting close to the end of the, of the conversation, I wanted to ask a question because when I was a resident, um, I have to admit, we still used oxyhoods. What happened to oxyhoods? <laughs> <laughs> you know, we find an occasional. I I, I may have to answer this because I don't know that Amy's ever seen an oxyhood. Uh, yes, we do use them at one of our hospitals. Okay, aha, there you go. So we find them locked. We find them in storage closets every once in a while, and the RT will walk out and go, "What is this?" <laughs> um, and you know, we we actually in the Intermountain system. Um, oh boy, probably almost. 20, 15 to 20 years ago, we went to a whole early lung recruitment kind of strategy where when babies are transitioning, we actually will place them on some form of positive pressure to help them transition. And it's interesting because if, um, you know, Lucky Jane did a lot of work um, back in the day where he looked at um, um, trans, you know, um, you know, sodium chloride and sodium potassium chloride transporters and found that different babies have different speeds at which they'll, you know, clear the lung fluid. Um, so we found that by doing a little bit of positive pressure, we actually have dropped significantly our um, newborn ICU admission rates, as well as our rates from level one and level two units that needed transport. So we've actually, you know, killed our bottom line, so to speak, while, while keeping babies closer to parents by helping them transition better. Um, I would say that um, the worst pneumothoraces I've ever seen were babies that sat on head boxes for a long time at outside hospitals awaiting transport because, again, they never established an FRC. They basically just had this thing over giving them oxygen, all the hyperoxy and all the stuff you're bleeding in, and they would just have ongoing shear trauma to the lungs over and over and over every time they breathed, and they would come in and they had really difficult clinical courses. Since we've gone to the early lung recruitment kind of thought process, establishing an early functional residual capacity, I see far less um, babies coming in with with that kind of really ugly, pneumo, you know, recurrent pneumothoraces, um, really, really hammered lungs from coming from outside places. 
It's interesting. It just a couple of times um, at one of our outside hospitals overnight, they've put the, they've pulled this out of wherever it's stored. Um, and then it's um, quickly, you know, we quickly transitioned the baby off. I think it's um, interesting that there's evidence to, to show that it, that it is going to increase your risk of pneumothoraces. Um, but I'm just, I guess I was surprised um, that I did see it a couple of times, but I, certainly I would not personally recommend it. I think everybody has a different approach and I think that's uh -huh. the important thing. And my biggest thing is, is always remember is, you know, just really try to practice from the standpoint of thinking about what is the physiology of your baby um, you know, based on gestational age, based on their clinical condition, based on the reason they're born and what's going on around the time of birth. And always think about the pathophysiology of lung disease and what you're trying to accomplish with whatever you're doing. And you know what I think it is, is that number one, access to evidence-based practices is difficult. Um, so if you don't speak English, if you don't have institutional access to get to read those papers, that's number one. Getting um, that's what we're trying to do with the podcast as well, getting the experience of other people, what other people have been able to do and what have their experiences been like is something that is not easily accessible. And I think that as a clinician, if you're used to doing something, there's momentum for these practices and the uh, the ability to change those practices is very difficult. And so I think for everybody also listening to us around the globe, because the audience of the incubator really is, it does not just, is not just contained in the US. I think it's very important to know that you can you can manage your babies very appropriately with a bubble CPAP, which when you're thinking in terms of um, of resources is also very low tech, as we've said many times. Um, and, and you're probably going to get better outcomes. I think that's critical for people to hear because I haven't seen a bubble, I haven't seen an oxyhood since, since fellowship, basically. But I have seen oxyhoods if I'm giving a talk somewhere outside the US and visiting NICUs, I see oxyhoods and and you wonder if if I don't think people are married to the oxyhood, but they just maybe need this reassurance like, hey, we've tried the transition and we're doing fine. And and that could be very helpful. And and sometimes it's all you have. So the other part is as well, okay, let's take the pieces of the oxyhood and maybe turn it into a bubble CPAP device. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's because of people's ingenuity and willingness to try new things that, I mean, neonatology even exists, right? Like we took machines that were not intended to be used on tiny, immature humans and we we made them work. Not me, <laughs> but you guys, people made it work. And so I'm grateful for all those people who, you know, took the ingenuity to 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 make the field what it is today. Same. I, I've, I've had the privilege of working with a lot of those individuals, um, you know, having practiced for the last 20 plus years and, you know, and spending my residency and fellowship, being able to hear them talk about, oh, yeah, I remember when that oscillator popped mm -hmm. its top and it hit the top of the thing and, yeah. and like, things that we would never do in a million years, but that's all they had, right. you know, the developed surfactant, all of those things. So, yeah, no, it's incredible. I think the other thing, too, is, is change is hard. Um, when I was first training the Columbia, a lot of the, the Columbia discussion was happening and all of the things they were doing with bubble CPAP. Dr. Poland called it a religion, by the way, just so you know. It, you know what? It, it, it needs to be a religion um, to make it work. And and the reason they have such good outcomes is because they believe in it. Their, their staff has buy-in. So mm. yeah, I, I like that. 
Um, we actually thought they were nuts um, when we started. Um, we were like, what? And the, no, and you have to, you know, and you gotta, you know, and then uh-huh. Morley came out with the coin trial and all these de- And then as Columbia's experience came out and we realized, no, they really, these, they're not making this up. This is real. Um, and then we started doing it ourselves. But again, we had to, we had to get converted and we had to buy into it. And then we had to convert our bedside caregivers because that's where it happens. If you're going to make non-invasive ventilation happen, it's our bedside caregivers that really make that happen. I can write orders all day long, but once they have a buy into it, I've, I've had, you know, I've had nurses come up to me and RTs, nope, this is what we're going to do. And this is the best way. And I'm like, yeah. Yeah. I think that's a, that's another great point that buy-in is probably sometimes supersedes evidence-based practices. You better, you're better off with consistent buy-in than with, with inconsistent evidence-based practices, unfortunately. Um, Dr. Lonnie Miner, Dr. Amy Miner, thank you so much for making the time to be with us today. We have one more episode uh, coming up in this uh, discussion. Actually, we have two more episodes coming up in this discussion um, and we're looking forward to chatting with you more, but thank you again for making the time to be with us today. Daphna, thank you as usual. Bye, everybody. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having us. Thank you for listening to The Incubator. If you like this episode, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or the Apple Podcast website. You can find other episodes of The Incubator and new shows from The Incubator Network on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or the podcast app of your choice. We would love to hear from you, so feel free to send us questions, comments, or suggestions to our email address, NICUpodcast.com at gmail.com or by visiting our website www.the-incubator.org You can also message the show on Instagram or X, formerly known as Twitter at NICU Podcast Thanks again for listening and see you next time Dr. Richard Poland, Dr. Lonnie Miner and Dr. Amy Miner received honorariums from Fisher and Peichel Healthcare for their participation in this podcast The matters expressed in this podcast are based on the personal experience of the physician and do not necessarily represent the views of Fisher & Paykel Healthcare or any of its employees or directors. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.